Well, this morning we finally get to move on from our discussion of sex and focus our attention on another small part of the faith, the nature of God. No biggie. I never promised that we talk about small things here at church. Here we are concerned with the big and great questions of life. All we ask is that you bring your full selves, including your brains, to worship. We're congregationalists, after all. It's what we do. I take from my text this morning the ninth verse of the first chapter of Job. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Please pray with me. Holy and ever-living God, may your spirit awaken us and open our hearts and minds that we may receive the promptings of your voice. Amen. One of the great joys of this job is the conversations I have with you. Sometimes it's after church over coffee. Other times it's in my office during the week or over a lunch. I've also had great discussions via email. I will say you are a fascinating group, never boring. One subject that has come up again and again, a subject that persistently appears, is the question of God. Oh, the issues that surround a belief in God. We should all agree that God is at the center of our faith. As such, the concept of God is something we need to explore. But when we start digging into our thoughts on God, we realize that it's anything but simple. I'm one of those people who firmly believes that an unreflective faith is not one that is worth having. There are far too many unreflective Christians. So if we want to take the life of the mind seriously in conjunction with our faith life, sooner or later we have to turn our attention to God and wrestle with all the little theological problems that perplex us. What is God like? What do you mean when you talk about God? As Julie Andrews sings in The Sound of Music, let us start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you learn to read, you begin with ABC. When you begin to think about God, turn back the clock to your earliest impressions of God. So I'm curious, when was the first time that you learned about God? Do you recall? I'm guessing for many of you, the first thoughts about God came from church. You were sitting up front during a children's lesson with your legs crossed when God came up. Or you were in a classroom and the Sunday school teacher flipped through one of those illustrated books of the Bible. You learned about Noah and the flood and about the exodus from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. Maybe you were shown some of the great medieval and renaissance images of God, like the famous painting of the creation of Adam on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Your parents might have taught you to pray before bed or before meals. Slowly, you developed an image of God in your head. It's remarkable how early some of these images take hold. I remember being in a church where the little children were asked to draw pictures of God. 
The pictures varied from a mass of squiggly colored lines to a bearded man in a cloud looking down on earth. While the images varied, each of these young children had already developed some sense of God, who God was to them, and even what God looked like. What were your thoughts? Not only of how God might have looked, but also of God's power, what God did, what God was like. Then again, maybe you were someone who didn't grow up going to church. You never sat in church or at home in prayer. Your parents never mentioned God. I would still bet, however, that some image of God seeped into your brain. You heard about God around school. You knew your friends were going to church or synagogue or a mosque, and you were curious about those places of faith. If you're younger, perhaps your introduction to God was all the talk that arose post-September 11th. Whatever it was, whenever it happened, I bet you all developed some image, some sense of God in your head. In many ways, those early images of God are the easy part. The hard part comes when you started asking questions. Because I know you. You are the type who likes to ask questions. For me, the question started in my early teen years. I remember dutifully saying prayers in church and at home, and beginning to wonder, how effective are these prayers? Is God even listening? Then I would turn on the television and see various athletes praying before sporting events. That struck me as quite odd, even as a young kid. I may not have known much, but it made absolutely no sense for God to intercede for one sports team over another. Unless, of course, you were talking about the Astros or the Red Sox. Even to my 12-year-old mind, such, things, such a thing seemed blasphemous, as though it was undermining what God was all about. Okay, so forget about sports prayers and the like, but there still is that nagging thought, though. Did God listen to prayers? I had a hard time seeing concrete evidence of the effect of intercessory prayer. If I prayed for a good outcome on a test at school, would it make a difference? What if someone was sick? Could my prayers convince God to heal that person? Did you ever have these concerns? I have to admit that the thought of intercessory prayer never sat well with me, even at a young age. Either intercessory prayer didn't work because God was not like that, or God was all-powerful and therefore God had made up God's mind before my prayers were even uttered. If God knew all, including what was on my mind, would prayers change that? For many, intercessory prayer is the first time that that image of God that you had as a kid got questioned. The implications of the questions are significant, but I would imagine that for most of you, greater doubts started to creep in your mind not long after. Why can't we see God? Why don't we have any hard scientific proof for God? If God exists, if God acts in the world, how is it we don't have clear evidence for this? I know for many people, and perhaps even you, these questions stuck in your mind. They vexed you. Those people I have spoken with, who ditched a belief in God at an early age, almost always stopped believing for this reason. Ask a 12-year-old atheist why she is an atheist, and you'll likely hear the response, because there is no evidence. I don't see God, 
So why should I believe in God? As a kid, I guess I was lucky that these questions did not trouble me. I looked at ants and asked how much they perceived about me. Probably not much at all. My foot was another obstacle to an ant, much like a rock. In the same way, it did not surprise me that humans, with our limited perceptions and brains, could not discern the evidence for God's presence more clearly. God was God. God existed on a whole other level from us. Still, other doubts, other complicated factors remain for the young, earnestly devout John. I remember reading through the Bible as a teenager and having my first questions about miracles. Do you ever have those same questions? The Bible is full of stories of God's incredible acts on earth that seemingly violate the laws of nature. Parting the Red Sea, sending plagues, causing the sun to stand still, raising the dead, healing diseases, walking on water. The list goes on and on. What to make of these miracles? Did they happen? Is God capable of violating the laws of nature? Why don't we see that today? Have miracles stopped happening altogether? Freshman year of high school, we had to learn about the Old and New Testaments as part of our Western Civilizations course. It was a private school, so they could teach us about religion, and the headmaster was insistent that someone could not understand Western culture, history, or art without some basic understanding of the Bible. The books we used to learn about the Bible were written by our headmaster. Not only did they walk us through the main biblical stories and characters, they also attempted to answer the question of miracles. Red Sea could also be translated as the Reed Sea, we were told. The passages about the crossing of the Red Sea could refer to a part of water that was relatively shallow amid reeds. If a strong enough wind blew, the waters could have been shallow enough for the Israelites to have crossed. The texts themselves were written many years after the events described. Maybe in the telling of miracles, the details became exaggerated over time, which made them harder to believe. But if you went back to the original event, perhaps the miracle was something possible, if also amazing. There are a lot of factors that can lead to healing. Psychosomatic factors can help heal people. Maybe that was the root of the healing miracles of the Bible. Again and again, our books tried to explain how the text of the Bible could actually have referred to things that happened. Perhaps the laws of nature were not violated. I remember thinking that this reasoning made sense, but it still left the question, could God violate the laws of nature? Was it possible? Miracles might not have been a deal breaker for me and God, but it did prompt some deeper thinking about God. What do you think? Do miracles happen? What implications do miracles have for your view on God? All of these things that vexed young John, the future Christian minister, might very well have vexed you too. Intercessory prayer, miracles, the lack, the lack of concrete evidence about God. Yet the older I became, the more that one particular argument against God grew in importance. It became the one argument that was hard, if not impossible, to get around. And this one crucial argument against God is encapsulated in our text this morning from the book of Job. The book of Job opens with a description of Job as the perfect servant of God. Job does nothing wrong. He honors God in all that he does, and he has prospered. Then the scene shifts 
to our passage we heard earlier. We find ourselves in the heavenly court. The various heavenly beings come before the Lord, Yahweh. Among them is Satan. Here, Satan is not the, is not the personification of evil, but the accuser, the opponent, the one who questions. God openly brags about how great a person Job is, how God-fearing and upright. Satan answers God that it's easy to be kind and upright and God-fearing when everything is going well. Satan challenges God to take away what good things Job has. Once Job loses all, he will curse God. So God and Satan have a little wager at Job's expense. Satan can take away all that Job has, but he, he must leave Job alive. Time to see how devoted a servant Job actually is. Following this exchange, just those very things happen. Job loses all his money, his children, his friends. His wife stays around to nag him. He also develops festering sores all over his body that itch so much that he uses old pieces of broken pottery to scratch them. That's what Job's life devolves to. If there is any vision of God in the Bible any image and conception that is the least alluring. It is the image we find in our passage for today. Here is God ruining someone's life, not because of anything that person did, but merely as a bet, a plaything. As exaggerated as this image of God might be, it cuts right to the heart of the biggest and most perplexing issues with believing in God, the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and if God is all good, why does evil exist in the world? God sees evil happening. God has the power to prevent or stop it. And yet God lets immense suffering occur. This is no theoretical issue. I know many of you have had to endure real suffering. You've had to watch loved ones die too early and cope with the paralyzing grief that hangs over you. You've had to suffer through various ailments yourself pain in your body that rarely stops, the dark, oppressing cloud of depression. You've seen injustice happen in our community and nation and around the world. Again and again, there is immense suffering around us. Why? Where is God? If God is good, why does this happen? I remember when I was an intern at First Congregational Church of Wolfboro, New Hampshire. It was my first experience working in a church. There was a wonderful couple who attended our early morning service on the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee. Every Sunday, the minister, Jim Christensen, and I would get breakfast between services. This couple joined us occasionally for breakfast. Walking back along the water toward the church one morning, they mentioned that this summer was the first time back in church in years. I was intrigued. This couple were clearly faithful people. What happened, I asked, rather naively. Why did you stop going to church? There was a pause. Our son committed suicide about five years ago. After that, I simply couldn't believe in God. God would not have let that happen. We walked back in silence for a bit longer. Then I asked, what brought you back? This summer is the first time we've been back to church. It felt right. I still don't know what I think of God, but I've come to believe that God couldn't have had any role in Matt's death. I don't think God is like that. But to be honest, 
I still don't know what to think. The problem of evil is as important a theological issue with respect to God as anything else. No belief in God can stand up to scrutiny until you have fully wrestled with the implications of evil in this world and God's role in it. Simply saying that humans have free will and that that is the source of evil is not enough. It does not explain the suffering like this couple experienced or what their son had to go through that led him to that point where he took his own life. In order for God to be worth worshiping, God cannot be like the picture we get in Job. God cannot simply make playthings of us for fun. The picture must be different. What we say about God, how we define God and who God is, matters. It matters for how we pray, how we act towards others, how we think of ourselves, and how we make sense of the world. These questions are not about angels dancing on the head of a pin or even a teenager wrestling with the limits of God's power. It's about ourselves, and it's about you and your life. Who is God for you? To help us sort through this question, there's one thing we need to explore first, one key reframing that might help overturn how you think about God. We need to examine the evolution of belief in God over the centuries and why it matters. We cannot begin to approach the question of God honestly until we fully grapple with the implications of how and why belief in God evolved. In the time of Jesus and long before, God was seen as the primary cause of events in the world. Let's say you had a bad crop one season. It makes little sense to you as a farmer why this would be the case. Why did it rain one season and not the next? Why did one storm wash away all your seeds at the wrong moment? In the pre-modern world, the answer was most often God. This notion of God and God's presence in the world took a dramatic shift in the 17th century. Most philosophers trace the change to the writings of René Descartes. Descartes was the first one to make a distinction between the natural world and the supernatural. There was the natural world, which functioned on its own, and then God, who hovered over creation out there. This separation between the natural and supernatural realms was essential for the scientific revolution of the 17th century. Scientists could explore the natural world and its functioning without calling into question the existence of God, which would have landed them into into trouble with the authorities. By the 18th century, this line of thinking led to deism, the belief in a watchmaker God. God God created the universe and all that is in it. Then God set the world in motion and let the natural processes of the world take their course. Illness was not because God was not because of God, but because of a bacteria or viruses. Bad weather had to do with the science of weather patterns and not a vengeful God. In our modern parlance, cancer is not something that God creates. Cancer is the result of a genetic mutation of oncogenes. God has no role in that. It's about the function of the natural world. A popular variant on this notion of God is that God might not be the primary cause of an event, but instead is the secondary cause. Bacteria, etc. are real things, but God somehow lies behind them. God still controls the world, but controls it through things like scientific phenomena that we see and experiment with. The The problem with the first perspective on God, the deist or watchmaker view on God, is that belief in God becomes functionally irrelevant. God might exist out there, but in that case, God has little relevance for life. Why worship a God who does nothing, who is incapable or indifferent of doing anything? 
What difference does it make? If God sets the world in motion and then takes a back seat, or even occasionally shows up in life, what does it matter? The problem with the second perspective on God, that God does control everything, but does, through so, through, but does so through secondary causes, is that we are still left with the problem of evil and all of its repercussions. If God is still in control, why does God not act to prevent evil? Why did God let the Holocaust happen, or illness, among other things? The traditional argument that God lets evil happen, so we can understand the good and therefore worship God, makes no sense in the face of real evil that affects you. So what do we do? How do we make sense of God and the experience of God we might have? I would venture to guess that each of you are here because you have experienced the divine, or what you interpret as the divine, at some point in your life. If we're going to make sense of that in a modern world, we have to find some way to get beyond the supernatural, natural divide. We have to frame God in a different way. We have to be open to seeing God in a different light and then have the language to talk about that with others. I would argue that the only thing that makes sense for us today is to do away entirely with outdated, anthropomorphic views of God. Views of God that make God into a superhuman and use human language to describe God as we see in our passage today from the book of Job, or the painting on the cover of your bulletin. God is not like humans. God is not a being alongside other beings, only with superhuman powers. God is not something you can examine in a test tube or try to find evidence for as we would find evidence for things in the natural world. We need to rid ourselves of a supernatural God out there who is separated from the natural world. It makes little sense to talk about God having a will, a conscious mind, as humans have a conscious mind. God does not sit in the clouds and make decisions about humanity as is so often portrayed in popular culture. Oh, I will intercede in that case of suffering. No, I won't listen to your prayer. In my mind, God cannot be like that. We need other language, other approaches to describe our very real experiences of the divine within our own worldview. Next week, we will turn our attention to one answer to the question of God, an answer that has its roots in the 19th century and that takes into account intercessory prayer, evidence for God, miracles, the problem of evil, and moves beyond the supernatural natural divide. It can be termed the liberal view of God. It's one that's crucial to many of your, many of your beliefs here at FCC and will explore its roots and various implications. Only once we begin to see things in a new light, and think through the issues carefully, can we have a vibrant and meaningful faith for the 21st century? I hope you will join us next week on this important theological journey.